Georgia's DBHDD has an urgent health warning. One of every 10 counterfeit pills contain fentanyl, a powerful and very deadly drug. Pills from friends or dealers are unsafe, and one pill can cause an overdose. More info at opioidresponse.info. Thanks for listening to the Political Rewind podcast. Be sure to like and follow us and rate us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And so we come to the final September edition of Political Rewind, September 30th, 2022. The year is flying by. Election Day is approaching very, very quickly. I'm Bill Nygut. Glad to have all of you with us. We have so much to talk about. Uh, I want to get right to our panel and begin the conversation. Jim Galloway uh, is back with us, of course. He's my Friday uh, uh, partner on the show, former political columnist for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and a longtime observer and reporter on politics in Georgia. Hi, Jim. Thanks for being here. No, no, I'm happy to be here. Thankful for that we're not getting socked by Ian, but uh, heartbroken for the rest of, for, for, for those par- parts of Florida that just got just devastated. Yeah, it's astonishing to look at some of the images coming out of Florida. Karen Owen is back with us. Of course, she is a professor of political science at the University of West Georgia and also interim dean of University College at West Georgia. Uh, Karen, thanks for being here. Your schedule has become extraordinarily busy since you stepped in as interim dean. So we're always glad when you find time to be with us. Well, I appreciate the invitation, of course, and happy to join you this morning. And Matt Brown, who is a national reporter for the Washington Post, a democracy reporter. Matt, you cover, get me, you tell me if I get this wrong, you cover voting rights, election security, civic engagement. You were a White House reporter for USA Today. And um, you've been paying close attention to things that are unfolding, uh, not only in terms of the Trump investigations that are going on with the January 6th committee, with the uh, Justice Department, but also what's happening here with the special grand jury. So we're very happy you could be with us, Matt. Yeah, thanks, Bill. Great to be here. And yes, that's a lot of the stuff that I've been covering this summer, as, as well as as we turn toward the election, questions over the security of the election systems here in Georgia, who has the ability to vote, and, and how is Georgia's 2021 election law um, impacted voters and, and potentially changed the landscape of casting ballots in the state. Well, it's a real pleasure to have you here. I I saved you for last, Margaret Coker, who I think our listeners know. You're the editor-in-chief of The Current, the non-profit digital news uh, publication that covers all of the Georgia coast, but also news from across the state. And, Margaret, I saved you for last because I want you to give us a quick update on how things are down there in Savannah right now where you're uh, based. We we know that fortunately Ian seems to be skirting land down along the coast, but it is nevertheless stirring up the waters off the coast. How are you doing down there right now? Well, yeah, we've woken up here in downtown Savannah to uh, actually dry skies and a little rain, which is a lot different than what we were expecting 36 hours ago. Um, I think the brunt of the storm really impacted um, counties south of us, um, Camden County and St. Mary's, we had some very dramatic photos of flooding um, bridge closures there yesterday. Of course, um, Camden County is where the East Coast's biggest naval submarine base is located as well, Kings Bay. So preparations there and in Camden were, were really top notch. I think there's um, a great deal of um, respect and admiration we can give to the emergency management systems. Um, personnel, both in Camden and in Glen. So people have a, there's a pockets of power outages um, in some of the like suburban um, communities that, that are closer to the shore and on the islands. But overall, I think we're doing pretty well here on the coast this morning. Well, we're very glad uh, that the people along Georgia's coast are safe. And we're thinking about everybody up there in um, South Carolina as it, the storm zeroes in up there. I, I actually was in <laughs> Uh, uh, Charleston in 1989 when uh, Hugo hit a devastating category, I think it was a category four when it came ashore, and uh, spent a few days seeing just the kind of havoc 
that a hurricane of enormous strength could could uh, wreak on a, on a community. Fortunately, at this point, Ian isn't going to be that powerful a storm, I don't think. But, you know, Jim Galloway, uh, throughout the week, as Ian has moved up the coast, we've talked about the political side of this story. Um, in an election year, particularly here in Georgia, Governor Kemp has made a, a, a point of being very visible. Uh, he's uh, done news conferences every day, one of them down there in Margaret's territory in Savannah. He's been over at GEMA uh, to uh, uh, stand in front of the uh, team there to talk about emergency preparedness. This is one of the most important things that a governor has to do, Jim, is secure the safety of the people of a state, yes? Yeah, I mean, it, look, this goes back centuries. Uh, uh, I mean, uh, the reality test uh, for, for any executive is handling a, a natural exa- uh, disaster. This is, this is something that, that, that your average person can look around and see, and see what's being done right and what's being done wrong. Uh, and that's why you've seen Kemp at the forefront. That's why you've seen, that's why you've seen uh, DeSantis uh, out there every day because they know they're 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 it's 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 wonderful exposure for someone just before November, uh, but it's all there's also a risk should should something go go terribly wrong. Uh, you've uh, you've you, you've seen some extraordinary politeness between uh, President Joe Biden and Governor Rick uh, 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 Ron DeSantis uh, that you hadn't seen for for a long time because. Because people need to be on their best behavior when uh, when people on the ground, when other people on the ground are getting socked. You know, Karen, I recall back when Sandy uh, hit up along the East Coast into New Jersey and New York, uh, it was uh, uh, Barack Obama, President Obama, was in real, was up in, in in his reelection campaign, and Republican then Governor Chris Christie. Uh, who had to deal with the devastation in his state, held a joint news conference with President Obama uh, in which they talked about how they were working together, cooperating to make sure that uh, the people of the state were getting what they needed in the aftermath of the storm. And Christie got untold grief from Republicans for being willing to have such a cordial uh, public appearance with uh, the uh, up for re-election president at the time. Politics plays a big role in these kinds of emergencies. It does. And sometimes when you're leading the state, you have to set aside some partisanship so that you can actually do your duty, which is the paramount duty of a government leader to protect the people in your state. Um, It's interesting, yes, you talk about the Sandy event, um, and you had Obama and Christie. Obviously, it did affect Christie for a little bit, but I think overall, the people in his state were very supportive of the fact that he was willing to have the state work with the federal government. And this is just clear evidence that you have to have all levels of government working together. It takes that coordinated effort, and in times when people are hurting, they don't care what party you are. They just want the government to step in and help you. You know, Matt, it strikes me that in one of your roles, covering democracy and issues around democracy for The Washington Post, um, this, uh, this now at least temporary peace between Governor DeSantis and, and, and President Biden uh, tells us a little bit about what's at the heart of some of what democracy in this country is all about. An elected leader of a city or a state, the first responsibility is to protect the people. Um, DeSantis, of course, has been uh, heavily criticized for the stunts that he's pulled, including sending immigrants from Texas to Martha's Vineyard. There's talk that the next flight might take more immigrants from Texas to to Biden's uh, home in Delaware. Um, DeSantis voted against emergency relief when he was in Congress, uh, when when uh, after Sandy uh, struck. Um, and yet now he has to turn away from all of that partisan gamesmanship and look after the people of the state. I, talk about what that means in terms of the role of a leader. Right, definitely. So the thing that has been so interesting about the story of Ron DeSantis and democracy in this country over the past 
couple years has been the unraveling of our social fabric and people in, you know, different parts of the country, people in different communities, socioeconomic brackets, um, you know, of different backgrounds, faiths, persuasions, not seeing solidarity with each other. And that has led to a lot of the lack of trust and questions of um, just cohesion that we've been seeing with a lot of these cultural battles that have been going on in the country that Ron DeSantis has been a, a leader in for um, the conservative movement. At the same time, he is also the leader of one of the most populous states in the country at a time when people's very lives and property are at serious stake. That makes it so that he is someone who, when he needs emergency relief from the federal government, he should and has been reaching out to Biden to communicate that and say and work with the federal government on you know, how to protect people's very livelihoods here and, and, and their actual lives. That story is something that I think shows the, the root essential points of, of government and questions around democracy. And we, people in this country can disagree over the scope or, or, who, or who government is for and everything, but protecting people and making sure that people are able to actually live out their lives, in the, and that's no more evident than during a natural disaster, is, is one of the things that is still able to bring bipartisanship together. You know, Margaret, I, I've said on the show a number of times that, um, you know, as much as I used to in my role as a political reporter, I used to love uh, covering the White House and Capitol Hill, spending time up there covering the big stories up there. At a certain point, it, right around the turn of the 2000s, it began to occur to me that the real action was going on, not in Washington, where gridlock had stopped anybody from making any progress on important issues. It was going on in state legislatures, in city councils, where there really were bipartisan efforts to work together to solve problems. Now, I think to some extent that's changed in the Georgia legislature. It's become more partisan uh, than it used to be. And yet, uh, at least at that level, uh, there does seem to be some understanding that these elected officials work for the good of the people, not to advance their cultural issues. Right. And beyond beyond elected officials, I'd say these are the these are the days where we can all step back and, and look at the unsung heroes of government, which are our technocrats, our bureaucrats who come to work every day and put those plans into place that elected officials then sometimes sweep in and take credit for. I mean, you know, emergency management personnel up and down the coast and at GEMA um, centrally have, have done an extraordinary amount of work over the last, um, you know, I think four days in order to make sure that we're all safe. When Governor Kemp arrived in Savannah yesterday, it was a fairly low key affair, especially considering the fact that um, when you look at the kind of stunts that, that Ron DeSantis pulls in Florida, you know, Kemp could go two ways there. He could really make a splash and try to be, you know, sort of up to his waiters um, in floodwater, or he could have done what he did, which is sit in a closed conference room with um, with those same technocrats and make sure that everybody had the um, the resources that they needed in order to protect lives. So, yes, it's, it's a time and place in America, I think, that we can all take a deep breath and realize that people can solve problems when they need to, um, and then it makes it even more, I think, off-putting and sort of nauseating when elected officials decide to play partisan cards instead of problem-solving in other times when, uh, when political realities or political points are, are more urgent for them, I guess. But thankfully, um, thankfully we've, we do have some adults in the room in Georgia, and, and uh, we are muddling through this somehow. Jim? Yeah, you know, and, and, and it's not just uh, it, it's not uh, just Kemp and DeSantis and Joe Biden, but there was if you if you were watching television closely, there was there was a thaw on on places like CNN as well. Uh, Marco Rubio was on CNN uh, uh, re- reflecting on the disaster. Uh, he hadn't been on there since uh, I think March. Rick Scott, uh, the senator from Florida, was also on CNN. Uh, the, the, these are these are two fellows who who usually restrict their their TV time to Fox News, and yet here they were, and and and, and of course CNN was happy to have them, just uh, off you know using them uh, using them giving them an opportunity to 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 uh, to to send their messages to to their Florida constituents. So uh, it was it was it was uh, it was a, a very interesting development in, in, in my world, I think. In the meantime, Karen, to take this back into the realm of partisan politics, uh, the fact that Governor Kemp is getting so much attention that Ian has dominated the news cycles here in Georgia is not great news for the Abrams campaign. 
which right now really needs uh, to pick up their momentum as they uh, try to close what appears to be at least a small gap between her and Brian Kemp in the race. This is sort of a time where she is out of the headlines. Maybe that's all right if she's focusing on the get out the vote effort, but it, it she isn't in the headlines right now. It is true, and we're six weeks from the election, so it is all hands, all feet on deck, right, going full force to try to get your message out. And right now, Kemp is getting, you know, free media. He's able to actually speak to people and show what he's doing in his leadership capacity in a situation that can be developing as a crisis and then demonstrate what he is, you know, can use the government to help those and prepare for those along the coast and talk through things. And she's going to have to utilize other ways to get her message out. Um, and so I think it is showing clearly how, you know, how is she messaging at a time like this? Is she focused on other um, specific policy areas or is she also leaning into the conversation of how she would lead if such um, events arise if she was also governor? Matt, I, as long as we're talking about Abrams, um, given your perspective as a national uh, reporter for The Post, um, how have you watched the Abrams campaign she, uh, unfolding at, with what, the, again, is an apparent gap between her and Kemp? How do you think it's a, a affected her national image? She had become such a star of the National Democratic Party after the 2018 election um, she's raised more money than anybody else could possibly imagine wanting to raise for this campaign. But has it in some ways, do you think, blunted her reputation across the country? Stacey Abrams clearly came up with political insights for the Democratic Party that carried them through 2020 and have now been exported to states all across the country in terms of how you can engage with you know, voters who are not normally part of the political process, how you can engage with communities of color, and frankly, just how you can actually just even run just the, you know, voter registration and turnout organization. All of that stuff has been stuff that I, I think a lot of progressive activists and Democratic Party strategists strongly credit Abrams with being the, the originator of it in the current Democratic Party. At the same time, the fact that she's not able to really break through the ceiling with Kemp so far and has been trailing him for basically the entire race has shown that despite all of those strategies and despite all of those efforts, People might thought that she'd found the, the key to unlocking not just victories in Georgia, but victories in Florida, victories in Texas, if we can, if we can really you know, ex- export these progressive organizing strategies out there. And, and that's just so far you know, not been the case in this campaign. There is still persuasion that's necessary. You still have to deal with a lot of the electorate that you have. And I think that that's been sobering for a lot of the Democrats who I've spoken with when I've gone into Georgia and elsewhere to chat with people. It's, it's been a question over what is different about her message this year, what's different about the environment, and how can we really be more sober-minded about what we're able to achieve with some of the stuff that, that Stacey Abrams had as an insight, that you don't just need to put up the, the moderate white guy in a, in a nominally red state. You can put up um, progressive candidates. You can put up a black pastor and, and still win. The question then is, the what are the limits of that and what else needs to be modulated? So I think there's a lot of soul-searching going on in the Democratic coalition as they look at Stacey Abrams to see, well, what, what, can we, what, what, did, we oversh- what did we overshoot here? What, what, what did we get wrong in terms of the Stacey Abrams model? Well, of course, Margaret, uh, Stacey Abrams could go on and win this race for governor. It is a very close contest. And I said on yesterday's show that I certainly think, certainly in the Georgia media, and I include myself in that, um, one of the issues that we've dealt with is how we perhaps overstated what a huge star Stacey Abrams had become because she did find a formula in 2018 that brought her close to winning the governor's office and certainly led to Biden's victory here in 2020. But to some extent, we created expectations for her successes far beyond perhaps uh, what were uh, deserving at the time. And now we measure her negatively against those expectations. Well, definitely, definitely that national media conversation is, is, not, um, is not helpful to pursuing, um, pursuing Stacey Abrams strategies here in Georgia right now. You know, it's, it's like sports media when you hype up a team beyond what is, um, you know, w- without any without any facts on the ground. You know that that talking point and that storyline just 
sort of starts to generate its own realities as opposed to what's going on on the ground, um, in this case, in, in Georgia politics. I think that there's still no dispute that Stacey Abrams's get-out-the-vote campaign formula is incredibly successful, which is why Republicans in the state of Georgia are trying to emulate it. So she still has um, this vanguard front-runner status. Um, as in my journalism career, you know, I've, I've covered a lot of revolutions overseas and democracies in crisis. And one of the things that I think just is, is very um, applicable here to Georgia right now is that emotion can only take you so far. You can have a very committed group of people wanting change. And again, it doesn't matter if we're talking about the Democratic Party or the Republican Party right now. But beyond emotion, you need both a ground game and then you need structural change. And I think one of the frustrations in the Abrams camp right now is probably that the structural changes that they need to push over 50 percent and win an election haven't come to fruition in Georgia. And of course, the biggest grievance is uh, the new voting rights law in Georgia and how that allegedly keeps people from the polls or or dampens out um, voter turnout when it comes to election day. But let's go back and say that we actually don't know who's going to win the governor's race, that again, most of the polls trending with Kemp in the lead still have margins of error that, that make this a very close race. Some might say that it's as close a race as the Braves met right now in the National League Division series that is about <laughs> to happen this weekend. Uh, Karen, speaking of get out the, getting out the vote, uh, you just had, you told us before the show, on campus, Kelly Leffler, uh, who, of course, since losing her race for the U.S. Senate to uh, Raphael Warnock, uh, has gone on to found a new organization in which she is trying to emulate the, uh, uh, the voter identification and turnout model that uh, Fair Fight uh, uh, was so successful at doing in 2018. Yes. Um, you know, since school return, you know, we, students return to campus, we've had a lot of groups reach out because they do want to engage college students, get them registered to vote and mobilize. And Senator Leffler is one of those with her new organization, Greater Georgia, wanting to come over and really speak to 18 to 22 year olds about their engagement in the political process, getting them registered to vote. And you're right. It is clear that she um, organized this group in order to kind of do exactly what the Abrams groups had done, the fair fight, and mobilize and energize young people and find voters who had not been registered to vote and bring them into the system. I think, you know, with the governor's race and any of, you know, the Senate contests we look at, 2022 is very different than 2018 as far as issues and candidacies. We may have similar, you know, we have same people but in 2018, it was an open gubernatorial election. Both candidates were having to actually tell the voters who they were. Governor Kemp has four years now incumbency to actually voters can judge on what he did. And Abrams, she's not reintroducing herself really to the voters. People know who she is. It's now all about turnout and mobilization and getting people excited. What message can energize them? And I think that's where in these last six weeks, we're going to see that ground game from all the candidates. How can they really reach voters and get them to turn out? Because going back to the point on these organizations getting new voters in the system, if you've never voted, there is anxiety to that. What does it look like? How do I go? How do I get my ballot? How do I stand in line? What's going to be happening? You've you really have to overcome some of that to really get excited and go vote. All right. Um, and we do know uh, that um, that this race, it's a cliche to say the race will depend on turnout. All races depend on turnout, but the margins are so thin uh, in Georgia. Uh, the D Democratic-Republican divide is so narrow that, that it is more true uh, than ever. We promised on the show yesterday, yesterday we took a look at uh, the ad campaign, the war going on between uh, Warnock and Walker right now, and, and we said we wanted to just duck into the... Uh, gubernatorial ad campaigns that are uh, out there right now. So I'd like to do that for the next couple of minutes, as long as we're talking about the governor's race. And, and I want to start uh, by playing a spot that uh, is being uh, used to attack uh, Stacey Abrams right now. And, and the reason I, w I think these ads are important is because they do tell us a lot about where the campaigns stand in terms of the messaging they think is resonating 
with voters. Let's listen to uh, this ad uh, in which Stacey Abrams is talked about as one of the liberal elites. Talk shows, magazine covers, television cameos. Stacey Abrams wants to leave Georgia behind. Abrams' next act? You also see yourself running as president, too. Oh, absolutely. Abrams is bankrolled by liberal elites. In return, she's pushed their agenda on Georgia. Lockdowns, school closings, tax hikes, releasing criminals, and defunding police. Celebrity Stacey, a perfect governor for liberal elites, just not hardworking Georgians. Matt Brown, among other people pictured in that commercial, is Oprah Winfrey. <laughs> what did you make of that spot, Matt? <laughs> right. So that that spot definitely that spot definitely takes a lot of Abrams's celebrity that, as as we discussed, she garnered over the past you know years in 2018, and is attempting to say that because she has supporters who live in California or New York, that that means that she's somehow out of step with Georgia. Um, That's not necessarily the case, obviously, because, for instance, Kemp has many supporters who live in states outside of Georgia and who are also very wealthy and notable. Um, So the question around the ad is really trying to tie Stacey Abrams and the fact that she she was so noted in national media, including my own outlet, that she was praised for the work that she did in terms of organizing people and using that as a cudgel against her by saying that because that she entertain potentially becoming Joe Biden's vice president or that because she talked about um, issues um, coming outside of Georgia or exporting her, her model to other states, that means that she doesn't care about Georgians anymore. That's not necessarily the case. Obviously, she's still mostly focused and, and primarily focused on Georgia and trying to be the state's governor. Um, but it's a, it's a line of attack and, and tying her to other famous black celebrities is a way that Kemp can attempt to show that she's somehow not aligned with Georgia. I will see if the voters of Georgia agree with that. Jim? Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, there's. In, in just uh, listen. I've seen that ad uh, quite a few times on TV, but li- just listening to it uh, is is uh, is a little bit different. And what strikes me is that you know it's, uh, and this is a problem that both Stacey Abrams and Raphael Warnock share. Is and uh, th- th- look, they're both African American. If there's a there's a, s- a subtext to that ad that you that, that you just played, Bill, and that is that is there. You can have resentment uh, among white voters when a when a black person does well. You know, it, it's uh, it's it's uh, uh, it didn't use the phrase uppity, but but you might as well Ooh. have. Uh, Ooh. And wow. and it, there, there, there's there's a there's a subtext to that. And and it's it's it, it, uh, you see the same thing on the Warnocks the Warnock side is is that uh, Raphael Warnock is is very much wanting to uh, is is cultivating an image of of the the, the non angry black man uh, that's that's been his it's been his shtick it was his shtick in 2018 it's it's or 2020 it is now uh, and and I think that's something we have to we, you have to pay attention to when you, when you when you watch these things. Margaret? Yeah, I think if we go back to 2020, I want to I want to add on to what Jim is saying. You know, the 2020 elections and, and the successes that the Democratic Party had, especially in Georgia and elsewhere in the country, you know, there's a lot of credit given to black women and black women coming out to vote and black women being excited to uh, to vote for candidates who look like them. I mean, the Achilles heel of this ad is that black women in Georgia are going to get their dander up and say, you know, our our time is still now and Stacey Abrams is still our candidate. And uh, and all of these trend lines of polls that show that that black enthusiasm, uh, black voter enthusiasm for Stacey Abrams is further, uh, further down or lower than it was in 2018. You know, there's there's a tipping point, as Jim said, for people who who hear that subtext of of that um, ad or want to hear that subtext of that ad. It can be a powerful motivator, especially as we're going around at this point, the last month of before the election and enthusiasm is is important. Um, Karen, there's there's also if you take Jim's uh, 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 point that he sees that there's a racial 
uh, message very subtly in, into, uh, imposed into that ad somewhere. Uh, there's also an us against them message clearly there. This is the uh, this is the wealthy. It's not just liberal. It's the it's the people who have money and success, um, celebrities, as opposed to the people who are the Trump uh, uh, base, the people who uh, are the working men and women of America who have not had the kind of advantages that the Stacey Abrams of the world now have. There's there's that us against them in there as well. Yeah, and I think you opened this by talking about in that ad the discussion of the elite. And so it does go back to this idea of the us and them. It's the, those are elite telling us how we are to live our life or what we are to be expecting to do. And thus, you know, she is going to be one of them. And as governor, she will represent policies that will have a play on the government telling us how to lead our lives. And that's not what we want. We're about freedom and how we want these other characteristics to be able to determine our life in that way. So I think, it, you know, depending on which audience is listening to it, right, they're going to hear something differently. But to Margaret's point about, I think, the key about black voters, what do they hear, particularly black women? Versus, though, two black men, how will they respond? Because we know that Abrams right now has struggled somewhat with the black male vote. And can this, in some ways, register with them against about like historical significance to elect that first female black governor um, in a state of Georgia? So I think those just, again, the audience that hears it, what did they hear and what is it resonating with? Them. All right. Thanks to thanks to all of you for a great start uh, to the show today. We're a little bit late for our first break, so I want to get it in right now. We'll come back and have a lot more on Political Rewind. Thanks for listening to Political Rewind. If you like this show, you'll also like Georgia Today. It's a daily podcast from GPB News, bringing you compelling stories and in-depth reporting that you won't hear anywhere else. Join me, Peter Biello, for this quick and convenient way to get the best of GPB News' extensive coverage of the topics that matter to you, delivered directly to your device every weekday afternoon. Jim Galloway, The Currents, Margaret Coker, Washington Post reporter Matt Brown, and Karen Owen of the University of West Georgia join us for today's Political Rewind. I just do a couple more minutes because we played an anti-Abrams uh, campaign uh, spot. I want to play a, a spot that the Abrams campaign is up and just talk about it briefly before we move on. Jim Galloway, you know, you made an interesting point. You, you, you uh, talked uh, uh, before the break about the fact that a Raphael Warnock and a Stacey Abrams as black candidates sort of have to soften their image for for the white voters out there. And Warnock did that with that that great puppy ad that he ran in uh, 2020. And in a way, the positive ad that Abrams has playing right now does the same thing. We see Stacey Abrams standing in front of a class of young students She's smiling. She's gregarious with them. They're responding to her in very positive ways. Of course, it's a mixed class of kids. But let's just listen to the audio of that spot and then talk about it very briefly. Yes. What? 689 times 547. 376,883. You're really good at math. Thank you. But you got to be good at math to be good at being governor. And I have a plan for Georgia. How about this? I'll raise teacher salaries, make childcare affordable for families, and invest in pre-K and schools. And we already have the money in our piggy bank. Check my math and check out my plan. Well, how'd you figure it out? I did my homework. Jim, the Abrams campaign and her, the PAC supporting her certainly are running negative spots against uh, Kemp over abortion, uh, particularly. Uh, but this is one of those examples of a spot uh, uh, trying to uh, uh, give uh, viewers a very positive image of the candidate. Yeah, and if I had to, if I had to guess, I would get, I would say that one of the primary ta- targets would be the uh, Republican and independent women voters. Uh, anytime you go to a class, you're 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 in in, in a classroom uh, with kids. I think that's 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 your that that's your that's your primary target. Uh, it, but it, it but you're right. It does. I mean, it, it it's a very very friendly ad, uh, and uh, 
uh, is uh, is not at all like the uh, uh, there, there's there's no uh, no no hint of uh, of of uh, oh I'm going to get this wrong but not Star Trek or or any of uh, any 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 of yeah. or, uh, yeah. any of the, the the mass media uh, uh, accolades that that Stacy has received. Yeah, no, you got Star Trek right, Matt Brown. Before we leave the subject entirely, uh, do you agree? With Galloway's assessment that there's a, a different barrier for a Stacey Abrams or a, uh, a Raphael Warnock to overcome? Yes, I mean I think that that's a clear thing that is just obvious as as, as um, the state of black candidates in this country since Reconstruction has been that white majorities of the population have not been willing to vote for them, and, and we're in a you know positive new era where multiracial coalitions of people are actually in states like Georgia, which are very diverse, one of the most diverse in the country, are actually willing to elect black candidates now. So we're in a bit of uncharted water here, to be honest, in the history of the country of even having slivers of the white population being willing to back a black candidate in this way. But that still means that no one, it should, it should be noted that no one is expecting in a presidential election year or in a governor's race anywhere in the country for a Democratic candidate, especially let alone a candidate of color, to win the white vote. And that is something that I think is just the reality of our you know, political climate in this moment and has been for, for several decades. The question there is, what can Stacey do to bring together and to appeal to not just um, communities that should already be amenable to her message, um, but also communities who might find her off-putting for xyz reason whether they're rational or not and unfortunately race is a serious large and looming part of our politics that abrams and warnock have had to have had to deal with but it is also the story of of significant and profound change in our country and the the political communities and coalitions who can actually engage in the process to to see as they see abrams be able to even contemplate being elected in georgia all right. Um, thank you for uh, that conversation about the governor's race, all of you. Uh, Margaret, I'm going to turn to you on this story because it has a huge potential impact down your way in Savannah. Um, a major story broke overnight about the Rivian plant, the auto, the uh, vehicle assembly plant that is already uh, under construction um, out in East Georgia. Um the Okmulgee uh, County Superior Court Chief Judge Brenda Holbert Trammell issued a ruling which uh, supported plaintiffs who argued, and I can't get into the details of it, first of all, because I'm not a lawyer and don't understand all of them, but they'll take too much time, uh, essentially that the state used a, a vehicle to allow this plant to go forward with lots of tax breaks, for Rivian, a lot of advantages that really are not supported by Georgia law. And essentially, what this ruling means is that the Rivian plant is in some jeopardy of moving forward. And in a political year, Margaret, to add to that, uh, one of the things that Governor Kemp is touting most is his huge successes on economic development, Rivian being one, and down your way, the Hyundai plant that has also been announced down there. This is a huge story, Margaret. It is a huge story. And I would say from um, from years of, of being a business reporter, I think that I would reframe some of your setup a little bit differently. I'm not sure that the Rivian plant is in danger. I think that the state is in danger of figuring out a new way to pay for Rivian to stay in Georgia. Because let's face it, there is no politician that would really be able to save their reputation as a pro-business governor if he, if Governor Kemp allowed the Rivian deal to fall through. So now there has to be um, a, a big a big concern from his administration about how to both get around this huge chunk of money. I think it's about $15 billion that is affected by this ruling in order to help Rivian um, continue on and, and, and build a plant that most people, except for local citizens in two or three counties, want to see built in Georgia. So there's a lot of um, a lot of takeaways here. I think one is that, yes, it, it is a potential ding to Governor Kemp's uh, very, very strong um, campaign platform that he is pro-business and the best governor for the business community. The second takeaway is, 
you know, a failure of building a strong local political consensus for what uh, the governor has wanted uh, to be a blue ribbon uh, mark on, on his resume as a leader for the state. And the difference between the Rivian plant and the Hyundai um, deal, which is down here um, close to coastal Georgia, is that there is a lot of local buy-in for the Hyundai plant. In fact, there's a um, not just from our joint development authorities, but from a lot of um, civic groups, even uh, black civic groups, who want to see this plant become a new economic uh, generator for people in Chatham and other parts of coastal Georgia who have been living in pockets of entrenched poverty for a very long time. Yeah, um, we should point out that uh, just the last appearance that uh, your mayor, Van Johnson, uh, made on Political Rewind, who's very supportive of the Hyundai deal and made it clear there was a lot of local buy-in for uh, that plant. Jim, uh, weigh weigh in on this, if you will. Just as recently as Wednesday, Governor Kemp was down there in West Georgia near the Kia plant celebrating once again an obscure magazine which named Georgia as the best state in the country in which to do business. Uh, yeah, yeah. This is look. Uh, th- this is one of the anomalies of 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 the Republican rule that we've seen since two thousand two, and that is is the dear disip- the 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 waning respect I would say for for local control. Uh, you, you you saw you've seen it especially in the capital when it comes to these cityhood movements or uh, uh, it, uh, for instance uh, you know the, uh, the 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 voting bill just passed uh, passed a couple of years ago by the by the by the legislature that gave uh, gave uh, the governor extraordinary rights to step in over over uh, local election boards so this this is it's it's kind of parallel to that I would also kind of point you to uh, uh, Bill uh, 20, you remember this, 2002, uh, the Barnes re-election effort and the Daimler Chrysler, uh, Daimler plant uh, down, that was supposed to be going into into Savannah. Uh, uh, it, I think they made the announcement maybe, what, mid-October, uh, just before the election. Ultimately, it fell through. Uh, and and so so these things do happen. And so I'm sure I'm sure Margaret's right that uh, that 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 Kemp is doing everything possible to make sure that this doesn't fall through on his watch. Karen? I would just add to that, you're right. I bet the Georgia Department of Economic Development is really at work this morning and trying to figure out their next course of action. Do they appeal this or do they go back and try to talk to the local development authority and the local group and kind of come to some understanding? To Margaret's point, this is a $15 billion tax abatement they're going to have to figure out for this company to remain. But you have a lot of citizens that were upset, and even it was part of the primary gubernatorial debate between Purdue and Kemp. And Kemp ran that this was extremely important for the economic viability of the state. I think one thing our leaders have done over the last decade is really point to the fact that companies want to move to Georgia and people are coming here because of low tax rates and the ability for these kind of um, tax incentives. Now, can that continue? I think this is the test case, right? What will happen if they have to appeal it? Or do they go back and actually, to Jen's point, try to work with the local governments, right? Not to strong arm them, but to really be um, a partner now in trying to get this plant there and what it can look like. Well, it strikes me that not only is it a matter of getting this back on track and figuring out some mechanism for doing that, but also if you're the Georgia Department of Economic Development, how many other projects are you hoping to get into the pipeline to bring to Georgia using the same basic legal mechanisms or workarounds that were used for Hyundai and and, uh, uh, Rivian? And, and how many of those companies out there might now be saying, well, we ought to look at South Carolina, we ought to look at another state. I mean, I think there's that potential as well. You know, Matt, it's interesting to me that it wasn't all that long ago that uh, people began proclaiming uh, the end of nimbyism, the end of not-in-my-backyard-ism. Um, this is a classic example of just that. As as Margaret pointed out, um, probably if you were to do a poll of the state, uh, people would say, yes, please build a plant that will add 5,000 jobs to the economy. But this is a local effort out in Morgan County that has uh, really seen success so far. Right. And NIMBYism is fundamentally, in a lot of ways, just a manif- it, it's, it's 
in a lot of ways, the hijacking of democratic processes to, to make sure that a concerted minority wants to make sure that a thing that they don't want to happen won't happen. And in this case, we've seen that in Morgan County here, where even a governor who's ostensibly saying that he's one of the most pro-business governors in the country can't actually get the project through. And I think that underscores both a bit of a house of cards that Kemp is dealing with here in terms of state versus local control of a lot of these issues, but then also questions around how actually will this money be then um, distributed? How will the prosperity of this be allocated once it's actually in place? And, and how are communities going to engage with the plant, with the business, with the state government on these issues? And that, that issue is not something that's going to go away necessarily just because the, the state was able to figure out a certain mechanism for being able to, to shoehorn this through at first. And unless there's some fundamental changes to, to the laws, around, for instance, you know, nimbyism and, and the mechanisms that make it possible in a lot of parts of the state, then that's not, those relationships aren't going to go away. And, and even if you do change those relationships, you're still going to have people in local places saying that, sure, a poll of the entire state might say that, I'm, that this is a good thing for the state, but I live here and I have opinions and I'm going to you know, express my civic engagement and my, my, my right to make my voice heard here in both you know, ways civic and legal, as we've seen here. Uh, Margaret, which all goes to what you were you started us off in terms of this part of the conversation, local communities, uh, in this case, really making their impact uh, felt. And the state, apparently, unlike out down in the Savannah area, failed to get the buy-in that might have made all of this go away in the first place. It'll be interesting to try to unpack that in the weeks ahead. I've seen very little reporting on, on that part of this story. Yeah, and again, I you know here um, for the future Rivian plant, I'll say that it is really a another successful example of bipartisanship. I mean, Savannah is a majority mm. black city with a majority black city council, you know, and and we we they, they we figured out how to deal with both a Republican governor and neighboring counties to bring about a deal that is going to hopefully benefit a diverse group of people, not one group of people. And yes, I mean, the Bryan County site is is absolutely empty of a population. It has been well planned in advance in terms of the state buying up the property to uh, to to lure a, a Fortune 500 uh, company to um, to U.S. And, and to Georgia specifically here, it also dovetails in with uh, President Biden and the Biden administration's, um, you know, green energy goals. So Rivian and Kia, its subsidiary, excuse me, Hyundai and its Kia subsidiary are going to be immensely, um, I, I think, impacted by the, the tax breaks and the tax credits that a Democratic president has had for America. Um, okay, we got to get to our final break of the show right now. Uh, we'll come back with more on Political Rewind. We've just got time for a, a, a short discussion uh, to end the show today. But, but I want to point out that another stumbling block for uh, uh, these, the Hyundai plant is the uh, Biden uh, health and climate uh, measure, which has passed now and which uh, takes away a tax credit for electric vehicles that are built outside of the United States. Uh, Senator Warnock is now working to try to find some exception to that bill because he knows it's not good news for his reelection campaign. We'll talk about that more on the Monday show because it also is worth uh, looking at in some depth. But Jim, we can't leave today without saying, first of all, happy 98th birthday Jimmy Carter. He turns 98 years old tomorrow. He's been a force in our lives. Uh, certainly, I bit, came here in 1983 and have been uh, able to get to know him a bit since then. You've covered him uh, forever. Just a remarkable individual. Yeah, and and he's still getting around. He and Ian Rosalind were were kind of the grand marshals of uh, of of the annual peanut parade down in down in Plains last weekend, and it was good to see them out, out and around. Matt Brown, uh, because it can uh, it connects to your beat. Uh, it's interesting that the Carter Center, which is celebrating its fortieth anniversary right now, 
has now gotten involved after monitoring elections around the world, more deeply involved in monitoring elections here in Georgia. And they've now started this project here to get candidates in Georgia to uh, uh, sign a pledge <laughs> that they will respect the integrity of the election. Uh, ironic, isn't it, that uh, an effort that used to be global is now focusing on uh, Georgia and concerns about election integrity here. Right, definitely. Matt, the Carter we, Center have, is obviously a premier organization in promoting democracy around the world, and it's a bit ironic that they're now coordinating these efforts back at, in their home state here. It, it shows both the the issues that, George, that states like Georgia have always faced with democracy, but then also questions around, well, then also questions around how to expand this and then shore this up in a moment when, when you have candidates like former President Donald Trump questioning the, the, the very integrity of Georgia's election systems and the very validity of, of his loss here, which, which, which has been verified by, by multiple organizations. It's interesting to see that they've also gone to you know, organizations like Stacey Abrams to talk to her about the, the 2018 defeat that she had there um, and going through basically you know, what were the questions around that and like, how is that different from what um, Trump supporters, for instance, are saying in the moment. Um, it, it really does show how fragile democracy is and, and how much we need to have trust in the system to make it all possible. Uh, Karen and, and Margaret, each of you, a quick comment about Jimmy Carter. Well, first, happy birthday, President Carter. And I will say that just to kind of <laughs> lean into the fact of the Carter Center, you know, my first obviously understood that he was president when I was in school, but actually understanding President Carter, when I read his book, Turning Point, and his first election to the state Senate here in Georgia and that whole election and his legal challenge of things really is fascinating to understand his hope and desires of protection of democracy and participation by all involved in the system. So if you haven't read Turning Point, it's a great book to read. And then lastly, I will just say I am so appreciative that a few years ago I got to take my family to meet him and Mrs. Carter mm. during a Sunday school session. And that was just life-changing that we were that close to the president. So happy uh, birthday. I understand how that goes. Margaret? I will say Jimmy Carter, as a charter member of Georgia Conservancy, um, having uh, the state really respect and enshrine into law the, um, the sanctity of, of our, natural, uh, our natural landscape. It's also helped now, 50 years on, it's helped us withstand this hurricane. Our salt marshes and our undeveloped barrier islands means that they were there um, to do what they're supposed to do, which is absorb storm surge and keep humans and other animals um, safe from harm. So thank you, Jimmy Carter. We, uh, we really do uh, wish uh, uh, President Carter all of the best on the 98th birthday and for being such a remarkable example. It's a cliche to talk about uh, what an extraordinary post-presidential run he's had, but it's a cliche that contains within it an enormous amount of truth, not only on the democracy front, but the public health effort that the Carter Center has made has been remarkable as well. They have virtually wiped out a devastating disease, guinea worm, um, through their efforts, and they need to be commended for that work and other public health projects that are taking on globally. We're completely out of time uh, for today's show. I just have enough time to uh, 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 thank the, the panel uh, for uh, being with us uh, today, Margaret Coker. Uh, Jim Galloway, Karen Owen, Matt Brown. What a great conversation to end September. We'll see you next week on October 3rd. I'm Bill Nygut. Take care. Stay healthy, everybody. Bye-bye. <laughs>